March comes in like a hippogriff and goes out like a flobber worm. You're listening to the Quiddler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for people who are tired of winter. Dobby's nose is the perfect place, sir. Dobby heard tell of it from the other house elves when he came to Hogwarts, sir. It is known by us as the come and go room, sir, or else as the room of requirement. Sometimes it is there, and sometimes it is not. But when it appears, it is always equipped for the seeker's needs. I'm Heather Price-Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And I tried to think of a magical equivalent to a lamb, but there are no just nice and gentle magical creatures. They're all incredibly dangerous. Yeah. The flopper worm is the best I could come up with, but it's not cuddly like a lamb, so whatever. If you can think of something, email us, because we really couldn't think of a good creature to put in that intro. Like, bow truckles are nice, but they'll claw your literal eyeballs out, and as we learned. Nifflers are, like, fucking cool, but, like, weirdos. They're not sweet. Unicorns are noble. But, like, hardcore as fuck. So, I, I don't know. I can't think. There's not, like... A Tribble or whatever. A what? Tribbles are in Star Trek. The trouble oh. with Tribbles? Nope. They're like little Furbies, oh. but without eyes. Or there's no, what are those called in the new Star Wars? Porgs. There's no Porgs. <laughs> there's no there's magical Porgs. There's nothing cute. No, everything will kill you in the magical world. It's very true. Hi, you're listening to another episode of The Quibbler. This week we are reading the chapters called Educational Decree number 24, and Dumbledore's Army. On this podcast, you will hear cursing and spoilers. You will also hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are performance improvement plans, veterinarians, mail fraud, homemade gifts, and paramilitary groups. Alex, what happened this week? In this week's chapters... There is a notice posted to the Gryffindor common room message board, a very large notice that says that the High Inquisitor has disbanded all clubs, including Quidditch teams, and that they have to reapply to, like, be approved. Uh, so there, there's no gatherings of more than three students allowed without the permission of Dolores Umbridge. She has, like, a pretty sweet official seal at the bottom of this notice. So the Ministry, like, got its graphic design team, like, whipped into shape to, like, roll this out really quickly. I, I don't know. Clearly they were planning this for a long time, right? They've got, like, stationary. This particular decree? No, the Hogwarts High Inquisitor has, like, a seal. Like, an official seal. Yeah, you don't think they could do that fairly fast? They're magic. I don't... But you have to, like, think that up, man. I guess. It's like a work of creativity. I don't know. There's a seal for the High Inquisitor. That's neither here nor there. Harry doesn't possibly think it could be a coincidence that the High Inquisitor has banned all clubs right after they just discussed putting together this illicit defense against the Dark Arts club. So Ron and Harry are wondering who snitched on them. Hermione says it's not possible because she jinxed the parchment that everyone signed to give anyone who tells about the club terrible acne. So that's funny and uh, useful security measure. So anyway, the trio realizes they're going to have to take this endeavor seriously underground. 
Later on, Harry is sitting in Professor Binz's class. When he sees Hedwig at the window, she is hurt, but she has a letter attached to her leg. But it seems like her wing is, like, broken. So Harry sneaks across the classroom, opens the window, and brings a giant bird inside. Uh, <laughs> which he then hides behind his back. Like, I guess Binz is just, like, so out of it that he doesn't really care. Harry's able to, like, get out of class really easily. He says that he doesn't feel very well. Please don't notice the large raptor that I'm hiding behind my pack. <laughs> uh, but Binz gives him a hall pass or whatever to go to the hospital wing. So he takes Hedwig to the staff room instead of going to the hospital wing where he finds Professor McGonagall and the person who was looking for, Professor Grubbly Plank, who is kicking back and smoking a bowl. A Not pipe. a bowl, a pipe. She's smoking a pipe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she's just kicking it in the staff room. Apparently you can smoke indoors in Hogwarts. I guess it's still the 90s. So Grubbly Plank smoking, smoking away. Harry says, can you take a look at my owl? Grubbly Plank pulls out a monocle to have a look at Hedwig's wing. Uh, so just in general, I'm really into Professor Grubbly Plank's aesthetic. Professor Grubbly Plank digs deep into her knowledge of ornithology and says it looks like Hedwig was attacked by something. So that's troubling because Hedwig is a mail carrier, first and foremost. So Hedwig has to do some time in... Is there like an animal hospital wing? I don't know. Hedwig has to, like, stay with Professor Grubbly Plank while her wing heals. But Harry does get the letter. It's from Sirius. It says, today, same time, same place. Which means the fireplace. Same time, same fireplace. Slytherin easily gets recertified for Quidditch. Neville attacks Draco Malfoy after he makes an insensitive joke about St. Mungo's. They're making strengthening solutions in Snape's class, so basically steroids? <laughs> uh, professional Quidditch must be so dirty, since anyone can just, like, take, the beaters can just, like, down, like, a half liter of strengthening solution or whatever, and all of a sudden they're, like, the monsters out there beating, <laughs> like, bludgers into people. I don't know. How do they check for that? Do they drug test in the wizarding world? Harry's strengthening solution is pretty weak, so he gets slapped with an extra essay. Umbridge is in class and interrogates Snape, who just isn't here for it. She asks him a lot of questions about why he hasn't been appointed to Defense Against the Dark Arts since he keeps applying. Uh, Snape says you'll have to take that up with Professor Dumbledore. In Professor Trelawney's class, she's extremely upset. It appears that she got probation from the High Inquisitor. She blames the, quote, establishment, unquote, which I find very funny. Gryffindor is having trouble being recertified for Quidditch. Umbridge wants to think it over for a couple days. Fred and George make more than a thousand bucks uh, based on our wizarding exchange rate, selling skiving snack boxes in the common room. Harry wonders why they don't get better marks, because they're clearly fucking geniuses. Hermione begs to differ. She just says they know, like, flashy skills. Hermione's wrong. Yeah, Hermione's, case. like, jealous, <laughs> honestly. After everyone clears out of the common room, Sirius appears in the fireplace. He knows all about their plans to start an illegal defense club, because Mundungus, it turns out, Mundungus Fletcher, was 
the mysterious witch underneath the cloak. So he was keeping an eye on Harry while he was in Hogsmeade. Mundungus had to go undercover because he was kicked out of the Hogshead years ago. And the barman has a long memory. Sirius delivers a warning from Mrs. Weasley that they are not to form any disallowed defense clubs, but Sirius is pretty into the idea and has a couple ideas about where they could meet. Mibs the Shrieking Shack? Too small, Hermione says. But their conversation is interrupted when Sirius he turns to the side, he looks very surprised, and a hand starts groping around in the flames. It's a hand with like short fingers and old-fashioned rings. Holy shit, motherfucking Dolores Umbridge has been putting warrantless fire taps on the Gryffindor <laughs> common room. Sirius is able to like dodge Umbridge's hands and the gang all run back to their rooms. The next day during charms class, Hermione says it's probable that Umbridge is the one who attacked Hedwig. She's clearly been trying to intercept Harry's mail under the pretense that Harry's been like trying to order dung bombs or whatever. Remember that Filch confronted Harry in the Owlery in an earlier chapter about a report that he was going to be sending dunk bombs. There's a terrible storm-drenched Quidditch practice. The twins have pus-filled boils on their backsides, which makes it hard to fly. They've been experimenting with fever fudge, which has some unpleasant side effects for their uh, skiving snack boxes. After a very unsatisfying practice, Harry's scar hurts tremendously and he can perceive that Voldemort is furious. He kind of clears his mind and gets like, I don't know, he like works that empathic connection, right? Harry dimly perceives that Voldemort wants something. It's not happening fast enough. Ron says, what is it? Harry's like, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's steel tariffs. Harry then realizes that Voldemort was happy when his scar hurt in Umbridge's office. But Harry doesn't think he should go tell Dumbledore about any of this. I don't know why. He doesn't think it's new information, even though he can tell Voldemort's like hour by hour moods, but whatever. Harry falls asleep by the fire trying to finish his essay for Snape. I would not be sleeping next to that thing after fucking Umbridge's hand like started pawing around in it the night before. Like what? Harry dreams about more winding corridors again. He dreams that he's like reaching out to like grab something, but he can't like quite get it. So Harry is having this dream when he's awakened by but 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 motherfucking Dobby. Dobby the house elf, he's back. He's wearing all the hats that Hermione <laughs> has been knitting in an attempt to free the house elves of Hogwarts. And he's come to deliver Hedwig on behalf of Professor Grubblyplank. Uh, so Harry and Dobby, they catch up. Turns out that Winky's still got a drinking problem. She's been, like, pounding butterbeers. She's still not quite used to freedom. The other house elves have stopped cleaning Gryffindor Tower because they're afraid they're going to come across the hats and socks that Hermione has been knitting, and they're very offended. So Dobby has been cleaning Gryffindor Tower every night all by himself. Dobby asks Harry if he was having a bad dream. Harry's like, yeah, it happens to me sometimes. Dobby asks if there's anything he can do to help. Harry says, nah, man, you can't really help with that. But Harry does know something Dobby can help with. He asks if there's any place that they can practice defense against the dark arts. Dobby does know of a good place. 
It's called the Room of Requirement, or as the house elves call it, the room where it happens. Oh my god. Just, just Hamilton pandering for the rest of this series. No, the house elves call it the come and go room. It's a room that has whatever you need at the moment. Dobby uses it as a place for Winky to sober up. Sometimes Filch finds extra cleaning supplies there when he's run out. Basically, it's the best room ever. So the club hold their first meeting in the room of requirements, which works as advertised. It's got like cushions that they can fall onto. There's all kinds of books about defensive spells and dark detectors, and it's just pretty fucking legit. Hermione calls a vote to imbue Harry with some democratic legitimacy. They all vote Harry as their leader, and then they decide on a name. Cho suggests the Defense Association, so they, they can just refer to it as the DA outside of meetings so that nobody knows what they're talking about. Ginny says, that's pretty good, but it should stand for Dumbledore's Army, because that's what the Ministry fears most. So everyone's like, yeah, that sounds pretty hardcore. And there's a unanimous vote to call this club Dumbledore's Army. Then they get down to work. They practice Expelliarmus. Obviously. <laughs> Zachariah Smith is not impressed. But Harry says, no, seriously, the spell is like Voldemort's weakness. The lesson is a smashing success. Luna rants about, like, fluoride in the water or something. I don't know. I couldn't get into it. And Harry gives Cho some one-on-one -on -one instructions. She's not doing so great. She says that Harry is making her nervous. Titter, titter, titter. Titter, titter, titter. So the meeting wraps up, and Harry can only think about what Cho said to him, and that's what happens in this week's chapters. Well, we've got this fucking decree. A large sign had been affixed to the Gryffindor notice board, so large that it covered everything else on there. The lists of secondhand spell books for sale, the regular reminders of school rules from Argus Filch, the Quidditch team training schedule, the offers to barter certain chocolate frog cards for others, the Weasley's new advertisement for testers, the dates of the Hogsmeade weekends, and the lost and found notices. The new sign was printed in large black letters, and there was a highly official-looking seal at the bottom beside a neat and curly signature. By order of the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts, all student organizations, societies, teams, groups, and clubs are henceforth disbanded. An organization, society, team, group, or club is hereby defined as a regular meeting of three or more students. Permission to reform may be sought from the High Inquisitor, Professor Umbridge. No student organization, society, team, group, or club may exist without the knowledge and approval of the High Inquisitor. Any student found to have formed or to belong to an organization, society, team, group, or club that has not been approved by the High Inquisitor will be expelled. The above is in accordance with Educational Decree Number 24, signed Dolores Jane Umbridge, High Inquisitor. Really classic authoritarian move 101. Just like ratcheting back freedoms bit by bit but like specifically making it impossible for people to like meet and communicate and like learn shit and come together in communion yeah man freedom of assembly at least in the u.s 
That's like number one. Fundamental that, that right. That is in the First Amendment. Uh, there's no wizarding First Amendment, though. So. No, obviously. Yeah, the trio make a big deal out of the fact that this clearly seems to be aimed at the nascent Dumbledore's army. But I think this would be an effective tool even if they weren't trying to form Dumbledore's army because it's just another way that the High Inquisitor can exert leverage against the students because even before the first meeting of Dumbledore's army, there's all this tension over whether the Gryffindor Quidditch team is going to be recertified. So everyone's on eggshells about Umbridge already because they don't want like sports to be canceled. It engenders a lot of mistrust. It puts a lot of wedges between people. It's a really easy way for her to show blatant favoritism under the purview of the job. It's overall just a really good way to divide the school against itself, to keep kids from like forming relationships, from learning and growing. It's just a really good way to stunt a school and uh, on a larger scale, a really good way to like stunt a society. So it's a really effective decree, totally apart from the particular target, which we are to assume is the defense club. What I don't remember is how does she know? I don't know. I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. I I don't remember. I'm like, it's funny. So we're both rereading these books for the podcast. We really are just reading these two chapters at a time. Yeah, we're reading in real time. Yeah, but it's... And it's been a while since we've both read the books, which sometimes explains some of our random, like, just mistakes. So sorry about those. But uh, the deeper we get into these, like, the further away, like, the less reliable my memory gets about some of these plot points. So some of these things are surprising me all over again. So I really don't remember. Yeah, it's a great thing about these books that I have read this one several times and the plot continues to surprise me because it's really quite intricate. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that makes these books really rereadable because she packs them with so much plot. It's true. Unless you have an insane memory or have read them a thousand times, which many people have, um, and even if you have read them a thousand times, they continue to surprise. So nice work, J.K. Rowling. You get props for that this week. No quibble there. Absolutely. One of my favorite pairs of scenes in these chapters are Trelawney and Snape's classes. Because both of them are like kind of having meltdowns in ways that are like pretty satisfying and funny. (laughs) I go hard against Trelawney. I think she's a terrible teacher. I don't think she should have her job. But this is like really upsetting and I do feel bad for her. Um, She hasn't been given any opportunity to like grow and develop. She's been given what seems like no professional development before this. Nor has she been given any kind of notice that she's a bad teacher. So this is like coming seemingly completely out of the blue for her. I really appreciate the kind of like automatic penchant she has to like blame the system. (laughs) Um, It's very, she has like a kind of delightful like paranoia and like underground feel to her that I appreciate even if I wholly disagree with her. They should give her a column in the Quibbler. Yeah, like she'd straight be, up. she'd be a great columnist she's, in the Quibbler. She's definitely the, on that end of the uh, the wizarding spectrum. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I feel bad for her. I just really liked this scene because she's very much in her own world. Like, she never comes out of her tower. And now the outside world is kind of encroaching on just her deal. And she can't, like, cope with it. And she's throwing books at kids. And 
is like really upset and I feel bad for her but it's a nice like character development moment. yeah it's fun to see a different side of her personality mm-hmm. it's fun to see her ability to get rattled yeah because she's so serene and bizarre all of the time <laughs> that like watching the outside world kind of like ruffle her feathers is amusing and she's clearly she's clearly being reminded that she's like oh shit I need to like earn a paycheck like I don't just it's true. Don't just live in this fucking tower. <laughs> Hogwarts has this kind of like enchanted feel. I mean, obviously it's literally enchanted. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that's interesting about this book is all these things that have been untouchable for decades are getting like holes punched through them. Yeah. So all these teachers that just sort of live in this magical castle like for free and just like have gone about their lives in this really specific way for decades and decades all of a sudden are like, oh fuck, this is a job. Yeah, it's weird to see someone at Hogwarts legitimately worried about their job. She's like, fuck, I don't have many employment prospects outside of this school. Like, I I can't go back to reading palms uh, on the, like... I can't go back to, like, reading palms behind, like, a weird storefront, like, downtown. (laughs) Then we have this great encounter between our two amazing antagonists, Umbridge and Snape. You applied first for the Defense Against the Dark Arts post, I believe, Professor Umbridge asked Snape. Yes, said Snape quietly. But you were unsuccessful? Snape's lip curled. Obviously. Professor Umbridge scribbled on her clipboard. And you have applied regularly for the Defense Against the Dark Arts post since you first joined the school, I believe. Yes, said Snape quietly, barely moving his lips. He looked very angry. Do you have any idea why Dumbledore has consistently refused to appoint you? Asked Umbridge. I suggest you ask him, said Snape jerkily. Ooh, I shall, said Professor Umbridge with a sweet smile. I suppose this is relevant, Snape asked, his black eyes narrowed. Ooh, yes, said Professor Umbridge. Yes, the Ministry wants a thorough understanding of teachers' uh, backgrounds. Yeah, it's like Godzilla versus Mothra. It's such a satisfying clash. And Harry is like, I don't know which one I want to win. Which, again, drives me crazy. Because, like, obviously Snape, Umbridge... you want Snape to win, yeah, bro. obviously Umbridge is worse. <laughs> Come on, man. Snape has given you a lot of homework. He's never made you scarify yourself. Snape is, like, moderately capable of that. Except that he's, like, Dumbledore's guy. Snape's all threats. That's true. He's a lot of bark and very little bite. You know, he's he's always been like, I'm going to kill your pet toad, but he never does. That's true. That's he, still pretty fucked up. It's a lot of psychological torture, but you're right that he doesn't usually follow through with actually doing the fucking terrible things he threatens. <laughs> the psychological torture is bad enough, but Umbridge is worse. I wish this scene, I mean, I know why it is the length it is, because this book is gigantic and packed, but I wish this scene were longer. I just want to see those two go at it more. Her grilling him about defense against the dark arts and him getting like increasingly sort of like Alan Rickmanier. In the movie, there's just that great moment where she goes, and you weren't successful in securing that post? And he goes, obviously. That is one of the best moments of the movie. 
And it's great in the book, too. It's just, like, such a... Like, Snape is real sassy in a way that, when it's not directed at children, is um, pretty satisfying. Yeah, he's a great sense of humor. He's in funny. A way. In a really dark, twisted way. But, yeah, he's he's got a certain style he's, to him. He's a good sense of humor, but he doesn't have a self-deprecating sense of humor. He takes himself way too seriously. But he can be very acid about other people in a way that's satisfying. Obviously. <laughs> Yeah, super good. Here's my question from this whole set of encounters, however, and the sort of broader implications that we can see from them. Where the fuck is Dumbledore in all of this? He's busy, man. He, his school is being taken over. His teachers are being put on probation. He's not doing any damage control. He's not like reaching out to people to like tell them what's going on. He has completely lost the thread. Dumbledore is nowhere to be seen. I think Dumbledore knows he has limited leverage in this situation, and he's trying to fly under the radar a little bit, as much as Dumbledore can be under the radar. But I think he knows that if he gets himself sacked from Hogwarts, which is what happens later in the book, he knows that things are going to get so much worse for everyone. You'd think he could at least like have a meeting with Trelawney and be like, listen... When Umbridge inspects you, here are some things that you should do. Like, I'm not asking him to, like, make Umbridge go away, but maybe, like, develop your staff. Have an HR philosophy. Like, yeah. do some fucking leadership. Like, <laughs> we, we don't know what Dumbledore is doing behind the scenes. It's pretty clear that he's not managing any of this. I assume It he's... seems like no one has talked to him in, like, months. I'm, I assume he's doing anti-Voldemort stuff. So Which is that's, fine. That's fairly high priority. It's really important, but it's just like every time things go to shit in this castle, you're just like, isn't there somebody like, I don't know, in charge? Like there's like a kind of a boss here. He's a hands-off manager. He is the most hands-off To put it lightly. <laughs> um, let's, talk, let's talk about Sirius. Sirius is... Uh, Back and encouraging responsible decision-making among children. Ha! Not. No, he's not. It's hysterical how perfectly Hermione pinpoints the deal with Sirius. As soon as Sirius is like, I think this is an excellent idea. You guys should do it. I will provide all the help that I can. Hermione's like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> that means this is a terrible idea. This is not a good thing, is it? And it's just like, I think that's such a funny Hermione moment because... She's so astute. She's like, okay, if Sirius thinks we should do something, we should definitely be doing the opposite. <laughs> um, and in this case, I don't really know where I come down because the DA is, first of all, obviously a wonderful part of this book, but also in a lot of ways a really important idea, but it also fucks them. Yeah, it, it, it fails in some important ways. To keep people safe from like umbrage, it certainly fails. But they also learn a lot. Yeah. So I don't actually know whether Sirius is right in this case or not. It's a very reckless idea. And they follow through and, you know, the consequences are extreme. So. I think for Harry's own sanity, it's a good idea because the very first few lines of the first chapter we read this week mention how it's the best he's felt in weeks because at least he's doing something to resist. Yeah, it's, we should be brave in the face of 
things like Educational Decree Number 24. Like, most of our great histories come from people who flout decrees like that and like do their own thing and engage in resistance movements and in that way they're being like very cool and brave but like the consequences are real and they're stark and Sirius is like this sounds like fucking fun and it's kind of like well it's a little more than that well and you can make a bad decision for the right reasons right or you can make a good decision that doesn't turn out okay yeah but even within Sirius's support for this thing, he has some really dumb suggestions. Yeah, he wants to meet in the Shrieking Shack. Which is crazy. And Hermione's like, okay, you guys could turn into animals, and there were three of you, and one of you was a werewolf. And the doorway's a murder tree. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why that was really specifically good for y'all and not great for the rest of us. <laughs> Where, how are we going to get there? There's so many questions. And he's like, ah, well, you'll figure it out. Like, thanks, Sirius. Umbridge's hand showing up in the fire is such a great image. I I just want to call that out. It's really scary. Oh, it's a truly horrifying moment. But it raises a lot of questions for me about how these fire phones... It occurs to me that that's an Amazon product also. Oh. Amazon Fire Phone. (laughs) Uh, Short-lived Amazon Fire Phone. I don't know how these fire phones work she's trying to grab Sirius by his hair can she just pull him through the flames so is his head physically there is this part of the flu network or is it a similar technology to the flu network because I thought they weren't using flu powder because the flu network is being watched well first and of I all- didn't think the flu network was even connected to Hogwarts so I don't, I don't think it's the flu network We do know that they're at least sort of corporeally present because Mrs. Weasley puts the toast in Amos Diggory's mouth. Right. So she's able to physically interact with his head in the fire. So some physical manifestation, whether it's his real head or like some kind of crazy astral projection that like has corporeal form, I don't fucking know. But something real is in the fire because it can eat toast. Something just occurred to me. What? So remember in Goblet of Fire... When Sirius meets them in Hogsmeade and he says, bring all the food you can. Just feed him to the fucking fireplace. We know that's possible. Yeah, but he couldn't get, he didn't, there was no fire. He He saw them in the fire in Goblet of Fire. Oh, I think that would have been too complicated. Because what, they're just like weirdly hoarding food like around the fireplace as they like wait for everyone to go to bed. Like that would be way suspicious. You never know what people. You never know what people are up to. That's true. In in Gryffindor Common Room. But more importantly, yeah, like, how can Umbridge get to this fireplace? Like, what is she connected to that he is also connected to? It's just, it's an incredible image, and it makes absolutely no sense. Like, the metaphysics of this are bonkers. It's like a horror movie if you could be pulled through the phone. Yeah, but, like, is she trying to physically pull him out of the fireplace it seems like it i think that would end badly for her oh he would murder her on the spot immediately yeah she's gonna get her ass killed by Sirius black if she grabs him by the hair and pulls him out of a fire (laughs) could he pull her into it with him like what's the tussling situation where is she is she reaching into her own fireplace i think so i don't know any sense guys If you have any theories about this or just know how it works, 
because you all have amazing Harry Potter knowledge, let us know. Well, and you're right. I don't think it's the flu network. Because Hermione is always talking about how you can't travel to Hogwarts by flu powder. Right. There's like all these enchantments. So how is Sirius even able to get into the fire? How is he so stupid as to not think that Umbridge is watching the Hogwarts fires? Like this is so reckless on his part. But it also just, yeah, the the technology is like, it doesn't make any sense. It's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it sets up some really neat moments. It's really cool looking. It's really interesting. It's very conspicuously magic. Points for style, negative points for like substance or undergirding of actual understanding of how this would work. Speaking of things that are cool but don't make much sense, Dobby has returned. I'm really happy to see Dobby. Dobby's a great character, but he really is Dobby X Machina. Whenever Harry has a problem, he falls asleep, he wakes up, fucking Dobby's there, and it's like, Harry Potter, I've solved all your problems. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's such a lazy plot device, and she uses it a couple of times, and it was most egregious with the gillyweed, and this is like as egregious as Almost. the gillyweed. Yeah, Harry, need they need a place to meet. Harry falls asleep by the fire, Dobby shows up and is like, bam. Dobby showing up makes no sense. Like, why is he delivering... Hedwig to Harry from Professor Grubbly Plank like in the middle of the night like what happened to make that happen did Professor Grubbly Plank like go at two o'clock in the morning to the kitchens and say like hey house elves like which of you wants to carry this owl rather than just put it back in the owlery where owls live (laughs) physically take it in the middle of the night to this random student um because he like desperately needs his owl like right now p.s. Very perfectly, one of you happens to like know him really well and love him and revere him. Would you like to do this totally insane task for no reason? Yeah, it's just it's just sort of clunky. It's like whenever J.K. Rowling needs something to just happen, she's like, hmm, well, I could have Peeves knock something over, or I can just have Dobby deliver it. Yeah, it's basically... You know? You know uh, to the point that because... Peeves isn't in the movies and Dobby is in them way less. The movie explanations for these things always make way more sense. Yeah, so in the film, Neville just accidentally finds the room of requirement. And Hermione's like also heard of it. Yeah. That's well, this, this like legendary room that just has what you want. Hermione seems like the obvious source of this information. <laughs> Hermione has read every book about Hogwarts. Certainly this is in Hogwarts A History or something like that. But Dobby just being like, oh, the elves know. (laughs) Harry Potter, I will show you. Well, I do like the elves knowing where secret stuff is in the castle because they know it super well and they're overlooked. So I like that aspect of it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. But why the fuck does Dobby always get to just show up and be like, (laughs) ta-da, solution? Uh, he's so good, though. So, like, I can't even be that mad at him. I know. For being a clunky plot device, because he's such a delightful character. The image of him in all those hats and all those socks is so cute and endearing, and I just love it, and I want to hold it in my brain when I go to sleep at night. The, like, towering pile of hats that, like, Hedwig is, like, teetering atop. And Dobby bows, and Hedwig is like, what the fuck, bro? And the hats, like, tilt, and anyway, it's amazing. 
Hedwig's falling off the hats thinking, oh, this isn't even motivated that well. <laughs> it's a great image. Um, it also brings up something that we've been kind of trying to find a time to talk about for a while, and I think this is like the right moment, is Hermione's whole knitting plot. Uh, have you been taking all the clothes Hermione's been leaving out? Oh, no, sir, said Dobby happily. Dobby has been taking some for Winky, too, sir. Yeah? How is Winky? asked Harry. Dobby's ears drooped slightly. Winky is still drinking lots, sir, he said sadly, his enormous round green eyes large as tennis balls downcast. She still does not care for clothes, Harry Potter, nor do the other house elves. None of them will clean Gryffindor Tower anymore. Not with the hats and socks hidden everywhere. They find them insulting, sir. Dobby does it all himself, sir. But Dobby does not mind, sir, for he always hopes to meet Harry Potter. And tonight, sir, he has got his wish. Dobby sank into a deep bow again. It seems like really bad allyship in this case. Hermione has had a uniquely poor idea for how to liberate the house elves. Her heart's in the right place, right? But it's very top-down. She hasn't really taken time to understand how they're going to react to this plan. It's non-consensual. Yeah. Like, she's she's not gaining their consent before freeing them. It's non-consensual, which is part of the same system as the one that victimizes them in other ways, which is not getting their input or buy-in for their, like, station. And they're really insulted by this, to the point that poor Dobby has to clean the common room all by himself. Right, so she's putting more labor onto the only free house elf in Hogwarts. Well, also, like, my main question is just, like, does this even work? Like, it doesn't seem like it follows the sort of magical mechanics of how you actually do free a house elf. I don't know. I mean, Lucius accidentally handing Dobby Harry's sock worked. But that was more like one-to-one giving you something. This is like, so... Just leaving it out? Yeah, can house elves do laundry? I mean, Creature, like, interacts with Mr. and Mrs. Black's clothing. (laughs) Boy, he does. Ooh, does he interact? Like, if you randomly find a sock at your master's house, does that free you? Like, it just doesn't... Maybe the intention behind leaving the socks and hats around is what matters. Maybe it's, like, really nuanced magic that, like, knows what you meant to do. But that doesn't make sense because Lucius Malfoy didn't mean to free Dobby. So I think Hermione is going about this all wrong. I also think she's not going about it particularly logically in terms of how the magic works. She doesn't seem to have done very much research here, which is so unlike Hermione. I do like that knitting is part of Hermione's activism because there's been this reappropriation, especially lately, of this kind of stereotypically like feminine, like domestic crafts in like social justice movements, like knitting uteruses and sending them to various like anti-choice politicians or the uh, the pussy hats I'm thinking. I actually think the pussy hats are a really good example of this because they're also like made by cishet white women who like made a lot of assumptions about what 
female activism should look like physically. And a lot of people felt that the pink hats were super exclusionary and um, a really bad symbol of the movement. So while there is definitely, like, I agree with you that something about the kind of handcrafted nature, like the revolution will be knitted, um, is pretty cool. It also kind of relates to Hermione's inability to, like, be particularly, like, inclusive in her activism. Because, like, there's a lot of criticism of those pink hats. Yeah, yeah. Mostly white women activists, like, really took on those hats as, like, a mantle of the resistance. And then, like, trans women and women of color were like, these don't mean anything to us. So, I don't know. I actually think that's, like, a really apt comparison because it's, like, really complicated and ultimately, like, not a particularly inclusive way of being an activist. Well, Hermione's activism is uh, is complicated, although... I'm not exactly sure what Rowling is, like, trying to tell us here. Yeah, I don't know what, like, where she comes down on this. Because I don't actually think, I love J.K. Rowling. I don't think that her own social justice is, like, sophisticated enough to be, like, critiquing Hermione's, like, uninclusive elf's rights campaign. Like, I can't tell what she thinks of this. Whether she thinks the whole endeavor is silly, whether she thinks Hermione, like, has her heart in the right place and that's what matters, like, whether she is mounting a really sophisticated critique of, like, non-inclusive, dominant culture activism. I I don't know what she's doing here. I can't quite grok what we're meant to take away from this. It's also kind of irritating that it's, like, this, like, comic subplot that she's trying to, like, free slaves. (laughs) Yeah. Like, that's challenging for me and it's like hard to even like find like shoehorn a way to talk about it because there's so much else going on in this book but then you randomly have Dobby be like and Dobby like appropriating these crafts to be like really cute like the sort of like cute like it's a little minstrelly like there's just a lot of I mean god the house elves there's just so much shit going on with her depictions here yeah to the point where it it becomes like hard to talk about without like, it feels Sounding, like, like, really offensive. Like, I feel like we're stepping on landmines and, like, yeah. But it's important to talk about because it's, like, a really under-discussed, really complicated part of this world building. But anyway, uh, Hermione needs to do better as an elf's rights activist. And she needs to have activism that includes the voices of those she's trying to act on behalf of because she is failing miserably. So wading out of these treacherous waters, we've got the Room of Requirement, which I don't want to spend too much time on, except to say that it's the shit. It's one of the best sort of like Hogwarts locations in the series. I am really excited that we're going to get to spend some time there. I love how it's foreshadowed in book four when Dumbledore talks about not knowing all of Hogwarts secrets. And one time he found this room that just had a bunch of awesome chamber pots when he needed to find a loo or whatever, which it's kind of gross that they're chamber pots. It's like old fashioned. Like they couldn't just like produce a toilet for Dumbledore. Or Dumbledore was like, I want to shit in a pot. (laughs) It might be that Dumbledore is old fashioned and that what his room of requirement (laughs) actually... Like, well, it reflects the needs reflects of the... Reflects his actual desires and needs. Oh my god. Dumbledore's like, no flushing for me. Yeah. Just a jar, please. <laughs> uh, sorry, everyone. Uh, it's the room of needs, not once. 
So you can't just be like, I want a bunch of gold. I like that. I like that it actually is what you need. It's also fun that it there it's foreshadowed in that way because she's really good at seeding these what feel like just sort of jokes and then they come back and they sort of have like morphed into really important plot points in later books. Yeah. She like sprinkles stuff in that you're like, oh damn, later on <laughs> when it kind of comes to fruition and it's it's really interesting. My remove requirement would just be a place to take a nap most of the time, I think. Yeah, mine too. All these students need that as well. No one's sleeping enough in this book. I'm worried about them. <laughs> it's interesting when Harry's scar hurts. Yeah, because Harry basically thinks... Oh shit, that's right. Voldemort is back. It's like exactly what we were talking about in the last episode where like Voldemort is totally obscured by these other like demi-villains and all of a sudden <laughs> Harry's like, fuck, that's right. I have to like fight this unkillable demon man God eventually. damn it. Yeah. <laughs> this is classic like sci-fi fantasy. This like mental link between the two of them. It, it's really cool. If not that original... It's like Frodo kind of being dimly aware of what Sauron is thinking or like feeling like the eye on him or whatever when he has the ring on or uh, like Darth Vader reaching out to Luke after he escapes like Cloud City via like his mind. Or like the weird like cross space and time conversations that Ray and fucking Rilo Kylie, what's his real name? Kylo Ren. Kylo Ren <laughs> um, have in the most recent Star Wars movie. Yeah, it's like a, it's a pretty trod high fantasy sci-fi trope, but it works really well here. It's also a good reminder of this being one of the main reasons Harry's such an asshole in this book is that he's got her, like, not only does he have his own horrible roiling thoughts in his brain, but he's also got fucking evil thoughts in his brain. And he, <laughs> like, he's beset by Voldemort's, like, emotions, too. So that sucks. And that's a really good reason for him to be, like, a little bit hair trigger. Yeah. Last but not least, let us discuss Dumbledore's army. LOL that they're starting with Expelliarmus. Oh my god, Harry is a parody of himself here. <laughs> he's like, and Zachariah Smith is like, are you kidding? The disarming spell? And he's like, no, I used it on Voldemort. It's like, okay. It's true, the true, true. Yeah. Where's the lie? But a fucking technicality. The only reason it worked on Voldemort is because their wands did that They have horrible... the same feather. Yeah, he's like, first, be me. Yeah. Then first, use Expelliarmus. First have my exact history and my exact wand and my exact connection with the Dark Lord, and then Expelliarmus will be really useful. Like, he didn't disarm the Dark Lord. He could have said any spell in that moment. Presumably. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What like, if he used, like, the Jelly Legs Jinx or something like that? Whatever he had said <laughs> would have made what happened in the graveyard happen. It has nothing to do with the fact that he's good at Expelliarmus. But this is a very nice montage scene. Yeah, we've been waiting for a training montage. I have been. Finally, we get a training montage. There's also just this sense of really palpable relief in this scene. Like, it's the most fun scene we've had in many, many, many chapters. And you just feel like they're briefly safe. The Room of Requirement is a really great setting for this because you have this moment where they really are, like, a world apart. And 
you do trust briefly that like Umbridge can't get them in here. Like nothing bad is going to happen for the hour that Dumbledore's army is practicing. And for how relentless this book has been, I was actually just like, okay, I could like settle in here for a second because I've been so fucking stressed out every second of this book. And briefly, they're just hanging out, doing spells, building characterization, building relationships, like having some semblance of fun, even though the fun they're having is preparing for like war. Sounds like Dumbledore's army has found a safe space. Oh my god, snowflakes. Those snowflakes. Fucking snowflakes. (laughs) But it's the importance of that, of carving out those places. I know, they really need it, and it's really, it's like a palpable relief for the reader to be in one with them. Like, there's camaraderie, and there's like, just like, good feelings for once in this fucking book, and I'm so relieved. Turns out there are safe spaces in Hogwarts. One. And barely. And barely. (laughs) Oh boy, does it get found. Yeah. Um, Harry's a pretty good teacher. I think so. Like, he's like, you know, going around the room. Like, he's doing more than a lot of his actual teachers do. If he was like most Hogwarts teachers, he would have been like, room of requirement, produce for me a blackboard. Then he would write Expelliarmus on the blackboard and be like, all right, practice for the next 50 minutes. Yeah. Flitwick seems to be the best model for how Harry is teaching. Yeah, Flitwick is clearly the best teacher, besides Uh, McGonagall. McGonagall, yeah. But anyway, yeah, Harry, like, he's, like, going around the room. Like, he's giving good instruction. He's giving positive reinforcement. He's ignoring his crush, which is not a great way to teach her. But eventually he goes over there. (laughs) And we get this really cute, delightful little encounter between them just like big hard eyes for Cho she's a good flirt she's just like oh Harry you made me nervous and he's just like damn (laughs) and she's just like got him right where she wants him I'm very impressed by her she's a really believable crush for Harry yeah the whole experience of their sort of mutual growing affection is really believable and really well written I think she's like cute and smart and she's into Quidditch and I just like you get why he's into her and it's like not the stupidest choice he could make crush wise and like lots of times our first crushes are like eminently stupid so I'm kind of impressed by this I wish Cho got a little more to do but I think we can probably talk about that a little bit later in the series but suffice it to say Harry's feelings for Cho are really understandable and pretty fucking cute Who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero is Lee Jordan, who appears in what may be the most revolting scene in all seven Harry Potter books, which is when Fred and George are in the common room demonstrating the puking pastilles and just projectile vomiting into this bucket while Lee, quote, lazily, unquote, vanishes the vomit. He's just, like, kicked back, like, scourgeify, scourgeify. <laughs> it's hilarious and vile, but Lee seems like an excellent business partner. And I need more Lee Jordan in these books. How cool must you be to be the twins' best friend? I mean, we got a lot of him in the first three books because he is ace Quidditch commenter, but 
Haven't seen too much of him since, but I love Lee Jordan. I do too. I wish he had a much bigger role in these books. <laughs> He's just delightful. He's just this like puckish, fun, like kind of hype man for the twins. I he's, really, he's so good. I really appreciate him. I know I've already done this in the last like several episodes, but mine is Hedwig, who is brave as fuck, who undergoes like umbridge's torture just like harry does and like lives to tell the tale and doesn't let umbridge get the letter well presumably she reads it and then replaces it but hedwig like discharges her duty and like gets to harry and is like yo hell or high water i have come to bring you this five word note please take me somewhere where i can get some medical care yeah neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays this owl from the swift completion of her appointed rounds. (laughs) Indeed. Oh, bless the Postal Service. I'm so glad that this is the worst thing that happens to Hedwig in these books. I know. And that she lives a long life. It's great. And survives. We just get to send her to the home for elderly owls, and she is fine. Oh, wait. In my fan fiction. (laughs) Yep. Which is called Harry Potter and the fact that Hedwig never dies. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, that just bummed me out so hard. Sorry. Maybe Harry later can be like Barbara Streisand. He just clone, clones Hedwig. Clone Hedwig. Uh, BT dubs everyone, Barbara Streisand cloned her dog. Twice. Twice. So, dog clones. This week's episode is brought to you by Skiving Snack Boxes for when you're literally sick of school. Ha ha. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix by J.K. Rowling. You can find us wherever it is that you find podcasts. While you are there, we would love it if you would subscribe so that you never miss an episode because you will miss a lot of plot because there is so much fucking plot in this book. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer to do that. We are... Across the pantheon of social media, aka you can find us at Quibbler Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also sign up for our newly reinstated newsletter, which we promise we are going to do more regularly from now on. It's back, though. It's great. There's lots of owl news. You can go to tinyletter.com slash quibblerpodcast to sign up. We definitely don't send it to you too often, so if you're worried about a cluttered inbox, don't be. Next week, we are reading the chapters called The Lion and the Serpent and Hagrid's Tale, which is very exciting because Hagrid is back and we missed him desperately. So, we will talk to y'all then. Thanks, amigos! We could try the fever fudge, George muttered. Does it work? inquired Ron, hopefully. Well, yeah, said Fred, but you get these massive pus-filled boils, too, said George. I can't see any boils. No, well, you wouldn't. They're not in a place we generally display to the public. I think a few of mine have ruptured, said Fred in a hollow voice. Mine haven't, said George through clenched teeth. They're throbbing like mad. Feel bigger, if anything. Ouch! Puss, Finnegan, puss. 
They're throbbing like mad. They need squeezing. Disgusting, but ugly satisfying. You will collect the pus. As each swelling was popped, a large amount of thick yellowish-green liquid burst forth, which smelled strongly of petrol. They're not in a place we generally display to the public, but they make sitting on a broom a right pain in the... Boobotubers! <laughs> <laughs>